Uranium is a byproduct of gold mining, which coincidentally is the main reason there even is a city of Johannesburg in South Africa. So it is perhaps not all that surprising that South African uranium was sourced for the American Manhattan Project during World War II. A project that I'm sure you know resulted in the construction of two bombs named Little Boy and Fat Man. On the 6th of August, 1945, one of them, Little Boy, was dropped over Hiroshima in Japan, changing the world forever. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. An estimated more than 135,000 people were killed that day, but that wasn't all. Nuclear weapons, as the Indian novelist Arundhati Roy has written, pervade our thinking, control our behavior, administer our societies, inform our dreams. They bury themselves like meat hooks deep in the base of our brains. One such hook was the South African nuclear program under apartheid. This Sound Africa podcast is about the program, but perhaps more about the circumstances that enabled a small group of men in an undemocratic state to produce and control one of the most powerful weapons in the world. And how the program still casts a shadow. This is episode one of a Sound Africa podcast series about South Africa's nuclear past, present, and future. The series is called Nuclear SA, and this episode is The Lager. My name is Sheba Melissa Mazaza, and Rasmus Beats has the story. All right, we're just here. Check the levels. Looks pretty good here. Yeah. Could you maybe introduce yourself? Yes, um, my name is Vincent Besaidnet. I'm a South African artist. And I currently have an exhibition on here at Gute on Main entitled Fail Deadly. Fail Deadly. So that uh, title, um, how did you come up with that? So the idea of a fail deadly mechanism is that a country's nuclear weapons would automatically be launched in when it picks up that another country, country has launched nuclear weapons against it, right? So that basically leads to what you would call a mutually assured destruction, right? It's midwinter in Maponing, Johannesburg. But aside from the temperature, this place doesn't have much in common with the Cold War apartheid setting of this story. Maponing is stylish and mixed, and if you throw a craft beer up in the air, it's more likely than not that it'll hit a gallery when it lands. On one of them, the galleries that is, Vincent is hosting his exhibition. And once we're inside, the echoey concrete surfaces in the drafty room perfectly frames the theme of the exhibition. The South African Nuclear Program. On display is a mix of photos and sculptures that all share a certain element 
of secrecy and abstraction. Because there's so much we still don't know, Vincent's exhibition is perhaps more about all the information that's been destroyed or still remains locked away in archives the public don't have access to. Over here on to our left we have sort of a big uh, black, um, what would we call it, a pedestal or a square column of sorts? Plint, there we go. And uh, on top of that is a huge stack of normal uh, A4 copy paper. On the top of that, it says South African Uranium Enrichment Program, August 1977, approved for release September 2001, and that's from the Central Intelligence Agency. Can you tell me how many pages do we have here? It's more than 900 pages of documents. And now you're flipping through the pages, uh, so to speak, and, and we can already see some pages here. For example, there's a table of contents where we can only see maybe like one-fifth of the page. The rest is uh, completely blacked out. That's kind of something that I came across again and again. Any names have been redacted, um, locations have been redacted, uh, critical information really that that we would like to know has been redacted there are there are still people around uh, from the old days who who don't really want anyone uh, snooping around I did actually once get a, a mild threat from uh, from someone working at this facility um, uh, I mean they were kind of very diplomatic meeting me for a uh, you know, to, to chat about it, and um, and and in a, in a in a very casual way, the person actually told me, you know, if you if you if you probe around in these things, you might disappear, and it won't even make the newspaper. Probing around, however, is being done, for example, by historians who make a career of probing the past. And when it comes to the South African nuclear program, there's one historian in particular who's made it her personal project to get hold of all those classified documents and find out what really happened. Um, so I'm Anna-Mart van Wijk. Um, I'm a professor of history um, at Monash University in Melbourne. Um, and I head up the School of Social Science at Monash, South Africa. In spite of the aftermath of a bad cold, Professor van Wijk meets me in a restaurant in Pretoria and gives me the detailed tour down the South African nuclear memory lane. Okay, so the history of South Africa's nuclear endeavors go way back to the Second World War. Um, at that point, uh, it wasn't you know nuclear research per se, but South Africa had a lot of uranium because of the gold mines. We exported some of that to the West. So fast forward a little bit to 1948, you see the National Party come to power in South Africa. And one of the first things that they did within a few months is to pass a, a law and they also established the Atomic Energy Corporation. Nuclear research was always a priority for the apartheid government. And over the next decades, the so far only peaceful project was developed alongside the apartheid system based on racial segregation and white supremacy. A system going out of fashion and bleeding legitimacy day by day. And it was in this context the nuclear program became important. The apartheid government needed to show that they were not merely outdated racists. And a cutting-edge nuclear program worked well to support the idea that the apartheid state was in fact modern and merely 
had been misunderstood. It could just as easily and perhaps much better be described as a policy of good neighborliness. I was born and raised in the ghetto. And even though the Sharpeville massacre in 1960 and the banning of all liberation movements showed that apartheid could only be sustained with force, incredibly, it seemed to work. During the 1960s, South Africa had the second highest economic growth rates in the world, and apartheid, it looked like, had come to stay. It appeared that apartheid was uh, in the ascendancy, and uh, if you were a white person living uh, at the time, or you were the government, it appeared uh, that uh, black resistance had been completely crushed. This is Nur Niftakudin, who is the head of the history workshop at the University of the Witzwatersrand in Johannesburg. He's written several books on political movements and township histories. So in a sense, the 1970s at the kind of macro level uh, was one of uh, the entrenchment of white privilege and white power and on the other hand of black repression, black uh, racial segregation, ethnic segregation and increasing poverty. It appeared uh, at that moment that South Africa would bizarrely, in a world that had moved away from colonization, moved away, if you take the United States as an example, from racial segregation, South Africa seemed to be this island of white privilege that would last forever. For the apartheid government, however, things were about to take a turn for the worse. Firstly, the economy. The international oil crisis in 1973 slowed down the South African economy just when revenue was most needed. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They will reduce oil because production at this stage, by 5%. Southern Africa was one of the venues where the Cold War played out, and South Africa was already involved. For example, in the South African-ruled Namibia, and from 1975, very much in the former Portuguese colony of Angola. South Africa became involved in the in the war in Angola around about 1975. There's evidence in primary documents that South Africa was asked by the United States to go into Angola in 75. And the CIA specifically was very involved in this. What happened in Angola was essentially a type of proxy war. Cuban troops who fought the South Africans as representatives of world socialism, while South Africa saw itself as a frontline defender against communism. But the relationship to the West was complicated. So they came within probably 100, 150 kilometers of Luanda, the, the, the capital city. And the US Congress found out what was happening and they pulled the plug. And back home, the system started cracking up as well. And never more obvious than one day in 1976. The uprising on June 16th, uh, 76, uh, was at one level about uh, the state's decision to impose Afrikaans as a medium of instruction. The state had decided already in the 1950s that black students should be taught in English and Afrikaans. And the reason why he did that was it said that black students, broadly speaking, had to work for white people. Now until the early 1970s, the state did not insist that all schools should, all, should be taught in English and Afrikaans. 
but in 1974 it decided that that would be imposed um, and it attempted to do that in 1975 or ex experimented with that and decided in 1976 that that would happen. On the day, thousands of students, high school students, marched through Soweto. Uh, and it was a very kind of happy event because for the first time ever in Soweto's history, young people took to the streets in unprecedented numbers. And they had a, a very colorful poster that said, To Hell with Afrikaans. Right? Um, it was linked very importantly to the desire by young black people to have a good education within the constraints of apartheid. What happened at around 11 o'clock that morning was that the police opened fire and killed a number of students. And literally within minutes, the slogan of the student of the students had changed from to help with Afrikaans to away with the system. The students almost recognized and came to the conclusion, independently of any political party, that um, Afrikaans was about the, the education system and the Bantu education, education system was a central part of the apartheid system. So within a day, a whole generation of young black people uh, became part of a struggle, not only for the, to secure their own personal education, but also to fight against uh, the entire uh, the entire party system. Pressure and time, geologists say, is all it takes to change anything. And as time went on, pressure was building up both inside as well as outside of the border in South Africa. And in the complex machinery of ideology and power politics masquerading as idealism, the Cold War context was the perfect storm from which the South African nuclear weapons program grew. And to understand how, I visited the University of South Africa in Pretoria that in itself looks like a Cold War construction. On top of a hill, a giant concrete box on thick pillars seems as solid and unmoving as the rock it's built on. And inside, the elevator appears to be a Cold War relic too. Where do you need to get off? Seven. Oh, okay. But um, the lift doesn't seem to want to move. But after a short detour through the African languages, I finally made it to Professor Van Vick's office. And now I'm not sure if you remember, but the historian I met only a few kilometers from here is also a Dr. Van Weyck. So obviously I had to ask two uh, professors yeah. of the same name yeah, yeah. And, and the same gender. Maybe yeah. you were sisters. No, well, I wish. Well, she's, a, she's a very good friend. Mm. So, so she's, she, she, I wouldn't have mind having her as a sister. Yeah. <laughs> this Professor Van Beek is called Jo Ansi, and she teaches international political theory and diplomacy. Together with Annemart Van Beek, she has written a scientific article called From the Nuclear Lager to the Non-Proliferation Club. And it's the first part of the title the one about the nuclear lager 
that interests me. Lager is an Afrikaans word, basically from the German word, which means an enclosure. Um, it also refers to the Afrikaners' pioneer history when there was the use of ox wagons, where these ox wagons would typically be parked in a circle and you create a lager then. So it's, it's also a, a physical structure. So the lager was typically referred to the Afrikaner community and their way of protecting themselves against the world. Um, obviously the, the Afrikaner-dominated government had seen itself as being threatened by the outside world, by the black liberation struggle, due to apartheid policies, and it created a, a world, a lager, for its own. Inside the proverbial circle of ox wagons, international sanctions and condemnation contributed to the outposty feeling. In 1974, then-Defense Minister P.W. Buerta announced that from now on, a staggering one-fifth of the total state budget would go to the military. The isolation was also creeping into the government discourse, where nothing short of a communist total onslaught was expected. In such a way, but like that by 1977, um, Foster basically declared that we, we, we need to to do it alone. It's a go-it-alone route. Um, we, we talk about um, the total onslaught. In the meantime, the formerly peaceful nuclear program had also undergone a transition. 1965, you see the focus starting to change a little bit. 1970, you see the first batch of you know, South African enriched uranium and an announcement by government that they have developed an indigenous method to enrich uranium and that they would be building a pilot plant and there was the decision to build one peaceful nuclear explosive device in 1974. The pieces of the puzzle were coming together, slowly forming the foundation of an actual bomb. But so far, it seems, there was no official strategy and no specific weapons program. But on a clear winter's day in July 1977, high above a place called Fastrap in the Kalahari Desert, a satellite was taking pictures. A big deal at the time, because even spy satellites had to take pictures on rolls of film. And when the film was used, the satellite was useless. Big investment for pictures of sand, one might think. But the Russians, because it was a Soviet satellite, knew exactly what they were doing. In this remote corner of the continent, the South African Nuclear Corporation had drilled two underground shafts intended for testing of a so-called peaceful nuclear explosive device. A huge and impractical chunk of metal with the code name VIDEO. But they were stopped in their tracks because the pictures were leaked to the Americans. And suddenly, Foreign Minister Pick Buerta was summoned to the American Embassy to explain why two 216 and 385 meter deep holes were needed in the middle of the Kalahari. Mr. Buerta, he had to keep a straight face because he, he could see that it was, you know, a nuclear test site, although he says he didn't know about that. Um, and he had to keep his cool and he said, well, Mr. Ambassador, you must remember that the Kalahari is very, very dry. So they're probably drilling for water. In any case, the test had to be abandoned and the shaft sealed and covered in sand. But that didn't mean that the nuclear program got buried with it. Quite on the contrary, in August 1977, a small group of men from government and the Defence Force met. 
I don't know where or exactly who was present, but I know it was secret, and I'm pretty sure cigars were smoked. And more importantly, they agreed on developing a fully functioning South African nuclear weapon. The nuclear facilities in the Pelindaba area were expanded, and the scientists got down to business, in secret, and so isolated that, as Joansi van Weyck points out, even the dictionary had to be rewritten. Added to that is the fact that the bomb was developed in Afrikaans. A new dictionary was created. But South Africa was not entirely alone. Help was secretly enlisted from several Western countries, and most of all, from Israel. We know that, that um, Israel assisted the South African government at the time. Israel was also very much in, involved in our weapons program. So there's been very close relations. And of course, that has been a bone of contention. And remember at that time, um, given Israel's status in the Middle East as also being a threatened society, there was a lot of, of um, common understandings of these two governments, we are both threatened. The concept Herrenfolk was used, Herrenfolk being superior, being specially elected, um, selected by God with a mission. The extent of the South African-Israeli relationship goes deeper than can be fitted into this podcast. So for now, let's just conclude that the scientists worked intensely for the next couple of years in a new secret facility in the Bushveld near Pelindaba. The year is 1982. This song is on the top of the charts. But probably wasn't played in the home of now Prime Minister P.W. Buerta, also known as the Great Crocodile for Christmas. Maybe this, rather, was in the background when he was given a very special Christmas present. A fully functioning military-grade nuclear bomb named Hobo. Obviously, the South Africans weren't even supposed to have a nuclear weapons program at all, so it still remained secret. Or somewhat secret. Obviously, those involved uh, in the nuclear weapons program knew about it. At the Pelindaba facility, about 10,000 people worked. But not everybody knew because you would work on only a specific part. So nobody knew the whole story except the political decision makers. The people in the intelligence community knew about it. The international intelligence communities knew about it. The Afrikaner elite definitely knew about it. But the average South African did not know about that. This, this is now becoming clear. But rumors about the program weren't necessarily a problem for the South African government. Because what's the point of having a nuclear weapon as a deterrent if nobody knows it exists? In the following years, six so-called devices were made and ready for use, and it seems like the apartheid government started developing smaller, tactical nuclear weapons in the second part of the 1980s. What we don't know is to what extent the plans were developed and if there was ever discussions of when or where to use the weapons. It seems very unlikely that the Hiroshima-sized bombs could ever be used inside South Africa because the consequences simply would be too devastating for everyone. But what about in the rest of the region? Look, the, the jury is still out on that. Obviously, had South Africa used a, a, a nuclear bomb 
in the region, we would have been affected by it. Um, because of the, the, the size of this kind of bomb, uh, we had soldiers in Angola at the time, um, in um, Southwest Africa at the, the time, so had it been used, it most probably would have been used in that theatre of war. Um, but I think what kept it back was that it will have a detrimental effect because of the size of this bomb. The tactics of the government were never tested because strangely, at the highlight of the apartheid government's military might, the most powerful class of weapons in the world were in their hands. It was also the beginning of the end. The so-called border war continued until 1988, where ceasefire let the South African and Cuban forces leave the Cold War behind in Angola. Inside South Africa, resistance was stepped up and the economic sanctions were starting to really hurt. But the apartheid government was not anywhere near a military defeat. What happened was maybe more a defeat of the very idea of apartheid. When black South Africans followed a strategy of making the townships and then the country ungovernable, the cracks in the system quickly expanded. And black people simply said no. And it meant that the South African state, through the black local authorities, wouldn't have control over the lives of black people. In that sense, that is what ungovernability meant. It was then that the government realized the game was up. Either stepped up its military repression, which would have meant tanks in the township, which would have meant using, like they did in Chile against Allende, using fighter aircraft against people in the township. Uh, the problem, and the big difference, of course, in South Africa would have been they would have had to do that against a majority of the population. That, that would have destroyed the country. That ultimately is the, the main reason why even the most repressive, most racist whites decided if we go down this road, it will be the end for all of us or we find another way out. And the majority said, let's find another way out. In the early months of 1990, a group of leading scientists and managers from Arms Corps and the Atomic Energy Corporation met after work at the Arms Corps headquarters in Pretoria. These were the people who had created the bombs. This was a social gathering of the vanguard of the nuclear weapons program and the guest of honor was still to arrive. The guest was the president, F.W. de Klerk, the last leader of apartheid South Africa, and the year before he had decided to end the prestige project this program really was. Today, he was to officially announce the decision to the people in charge. I don't know what the men waiting for the president had expected, but what they got was a disappointment. According to Dr. Nick von Willig, who was involved in the program from 1975 until it was finally dismantled, describes what then happened in his book about the project. An era marked by outstanding scientific and technical achievement, he writes, was dismissively brought to an end in a brief and awkward speech. The physicist then notes that the president asked a member of staff for a drink for the road, before he leaves the gathering soon after. And maybe this scene describes the ending of the incredible nuclear program better than anything. The top scientists of apartheid who have created a remarkable and incredibly dangerous weapon 
It's a means to keep the oppressive system secure, are left behind, feeling underappreciated it seems, by a man who's one of them, in fact their leader, but who hurries out with a drink he prefers to have on the backseat of his car on his own. Maybe because he has seen the writing on the wall. Now most stories about the South African nuclear program ends happily. Because South Africa was the first and only country to abandon its nuclear weapons voluntarily. And while that is true and remarkable, I don't think they did it to advance world peace. And neither does either of the professors van Weyck. We know that it was, in our case, a government wanting to, sa- to save face and being able to get to the negotiating table and say, look, this is what we gave up, what are you going to give up? Um, or not to say, look, we don't want to have these bombs in certain hands. So basically part of this whole dismantling, at least if you're looking at the role of the United States, is that they wanted to make sure that uh, nukes didn't fall into the hands of a black government. It's a very controversial statement that I'm making, okay? But I have a document that states that. How, how big that pressure was, um, I'm not sure. Um, what role it played in the final decision to dismantle, I don't know. You know, um, but I do think it did play a role. We can't be entirely sure about why the program was given up when it was. And there are so many other things about the nuclear program we don't know either. And that's mostly because most of the documentation in South Africa simply was destroyed in a process called Operation Masada. Named after the Israelites' last stand against the Romans, this operation did not involve defending the top of a mountain, but rather shredding thousands of documents and destroying hard drives with information. And this is partly why we still don't know much about this and other weapons programs of the late apartheid state. Another reason seems to be that the current NC-led government also has decided to keep hiding information and protecting the people involved. But why? Nuren Niftakudin gets the last word. It is well known that the ANC was deeply infiltrated by the security. Uh, there have been many speculations about very high-ranking uh, ANC members having been on the payroll or at least associated with the apartheid security regime. Now, um, and therefore, there has been a veil of secrecy around matters such as uh, security in general and therefore, by extension, also the nuclear program. There's, a, there is, there's almost an unwritten agreement uh, between the current government and the apartheid government not to reveal certain secrets. There are many rumors going around. People are kind of, you know, mentioned names of kind of high-ranking ANC officials uh, who were selling secrets to the government, may even been on the payroll. One of the key concerns that the ANC has is that once all of that unravels, once the veil of secrecy is lifted, Everyone will know everything. The challenge we have in South Africa at the moment is that there are people who hold key positions of power, particularly in the security apparatus who know these things. And therefore they are exerting power on people today because of what they know about their past. 
And you were saying you have people walking around with these secrets, people who are being paid state pensions, people who play terrible roles uh, on behalf of the apartheid government who are still working and sometimes uh, quite with, with working with quite high profile people. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore all of those people who are involved want to maintain this veil of secrecy uh, in the hope that in 20, 30 years time there won't be people around who can tell the stories. You have been listening to the first episode of the four-part Sound Africa series, Nuclear SA. Next week's episode is called Enrichment. It's a story about grand corruption and geopolitics unfolding right now. As always, you can find this and all our other podcasts on soundafrica.org. You can also find out how to subscribe and never miss an episode. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for updates about everything we do. If you like what you've heard, give us a review in iTunes. Somehow, that makes it easier for everyone else to find us. You can also just tell your neighbor about us. This podcast is made possible with support from the Heinrich Bull Foundation, Southern Africa. You can learn more about their work on za.boell.org. It is produced by Rasmus Bitsk with help from Lars Overland. My name is Shiva Melissa Mazaza. Thank you for listening.